jewelry in my chain That's the life I want to live. Show me the money. Show me the money. Welcome to the Pay Matters Podcast, a podcast about the art and science of employee compensation. Each week, we deliver the best information and analysis about compensation trends. Now, here's your host, David Weaver. Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Pay Matters Podcast. I'm your host, David Weaver, president of the Compensation and HR Group and author of the book, Pay Matters. I'd like to welcome our guest, Greg Larson. He's author of the book, Clubby, a minor league baseball memoir. Greg, great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your new book. Thanks for having me, David. I am, I think, first and foremost, a storyteller. I'm an author. This is actually, a lot of people don't know this, Clubby is my second book. It's about... Um, my years as a clubhouse attendant in a minor league baseball team. My first book was a self-published college memoir. And right now I'm working on a third book, a novel that is a little bit hush-hush secret, but I can say that it's a love story novel. That's great. Well, you know, not many people know this, but you are a certified compensation analyst. And from my perspective, Pay is the centerpiece of your book. Um, you know, and, and actually on page 30 of your book, you publish the salary scale for minor league players. Can, can you talk about that? For sure. Yeah. When I was a clubhouse attendant, I did not expect to write a book about it. I didn't expect to write a memoir about it. But there was this day early on in my time as a clubby is short for clubhouse attendant. Um, my early days as a clubby, I found the I found the player handbook for the Baltimore Orioles minor leaguers, and in that handbook was the salary scale. And that was this real cognitive dissonance moment for me, where I saw that the players, you know, minor league baseball is set up in single A is the lowest level, double A is the middle, triple A is the highest. And what I saw was that the guys on the team I was working with, they were making about twelve hundred and fifty dollars a month on the high end and they were only playing they're only getting paid for the months that they played and that's that season was only two and a half months long so these guys were making less than forty five hundred dollars a year playing professional baseball for the baltimore orioles i mean and that's that was common across all minor league baseball teams and that was one of those moments where i was basically the team mom i would feed the team i would do laundry do everything for them and i was making three times as much as a lot of these guys and it was just this shocking moment where i thought man there's some interesting dynamic going on on here and it's centered around salary i don't know exactly what the story is but i know there's going to be a story so i just started taking notes and what i found was that i think that undercompensated mentality completely permeated the culture of minor league baseball Okay, so there was a lot of focus on the low pay versus the major league players that were really making, you know, very good money. Right. And like, look, I don't think that minor league players should be compensated anywhere near major leaguers. I think that, you know, people should be compensated commensurate to the value that they bring. But those minor leaguers aren't, they aren't even making minimum wage. 
and Major League Baseball is able to get away with it because they have um, antitrust exemption going back literally more than a century because they're technically considered seasonal workers and baseball is considered an entertainment as opposed to a business enterprise, which for a $10 billion plus dollar industry just doesn't make any sense to me. So yeah, like I don't think a manual leaguer should be making $30 million a year, but a livable salary at the very least. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody should be making a living wage, including the clubhouse attendance. So, <laughs> so, so what about, uh, it sounds like it's a pay for seniority type system. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it is. I mean, seniority to, I think the industry's detriment, seniority is prioritized so much where, um, a minor, a, a template minor league contract. When a guy is drafted, he signs basically a template boilerplate contract that puts them in the. Uh, they're contracted with the drafting team for six seasons, I believe, and only after those six seasons can they renegotiate their contract. So, and inevitably, once they renegotiate that contract, they're going to get paid more money, even if they're not a high quality player. So it, people are are rewarded for sticking around for a long time, even if they're not the best play. It's not a pure meritocracy. It's, it is very seniority based. And what I found, it, a lot of it doesn't make sense for actually creating a successful organization as you must know, like the seniority based system just weeds out a lot of people who might be, I don't know there's this sunk cost fallacy where I think a team will put a big signing bonus into one player and give them more chances than a guy who had a smaller signing bonus because they've already sunk so much money into the high signing bonus guy that they're going to give him more chances. And then all the re- all of a sudden, because he has more chances, he sticks around longer. And then that sunk cost just feels like too much to give up. Mm-hmm. Boy, it just seems like they're ready to go to a performance-based system so that the, the players that perform the best get paid the most. Yeah, I, I think that's that's way more common in the major leagues, mm-hmm. just because guys are they've already played out their um, their template minor league contract. So it is much more performance based in the major leagues, but in the minor leagues, it's just it's messed up. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that minor leaguers are not unionized, and major leaguers have potentially the most powerful union in professional sports, maybe one of the most powerful unions in the country. Mm-hmm. That's a big difference. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Interesting. Now, now, in contrast, how much do clubhouse attendants make versus the players? I was making so if, if those players were making roughly forty five hundred dollars a year, I was making between twelve and fifteen thousand dollars in the summer. And for a guy like I am a pretty frugal guy, and I was living in South Carolina at the time, a place that's very cheap. They pretty much just pay you to live there. I mean, the, the rent was like nothing. Uh, I could live off of that twelve dollars to $15,000 for an entire year until I got to the next season. I mean, I was living high off the hog on that money. <laughs> but the, it's interesting because a lot of these uh, to, um, you know, at, at the same time my book is coming out, there are a lot of changes to the compensation for not only minor league baseball players, but also the clubbies where like, there was a dues system that players would pay, which just ne- it never made sense to me, even though I was profiting from it, where the players would play a clubby, pay a clubby $7 a day, say, to wash their laundry and to feed them. 
which just didn't make sense. It's like, wait, you guys have to be in this clubhouse. And instead of the, the major league team, just paying for this food and paying for the laundry, it's put on the shoulder. It's the, the player's obligation. It didn't make sense to me. And so that, that dues system has been abolished. And along with that, um, major league baseball has increased minor leaguer salaries. They, they like to tout this 38 to 72% number. Mm-hmm. Like we've increased salaries between 38 and 72%, <laughs> which sounds good. But like when you look at the raw figures, everybody in minor league baseball is still making less than almost everybody's still making less than $15,000 a year. So is it an improvement? Yes. But they make it seem like a lot better improvement than it really is. Well, they were probably didn't want the minor leaguers to become unionized. So they had to do something, I think. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Now, now in your book, you, you mentioned other incentives or should I say schemes that you use to make extra money. Could you, could you describe a few of those? Yeah, of course. Uh, there are two, two that I had that were my favorites where one, I had a, a deal with the stadium beer supplier, the Budweiser guy, John, the Bud guy. He's probably still in my phone as John Budweiser um, <laughs> as though that was his last name, you know? And, but I, I had a deal with him where at the beginning of each season, I would give him some extra, I was in charge of equipment. So I could just pull a couple of bats off the shelf and hand him some baseball bats and some caps. And he would just, he would tell his, um, you know, his warehouse that a couple of pallets of Budweiser fell off the back of the truck and then <laughs> that he would just give them to me. And then what I would do, I'd have all this Budweiser. I would give it to our coaches who would then tip me better. Mm-hmm. And then if a visiting team came in, John, the bud guy, I mean, he could get um, gear from the team we worked for at all the time from me. But what was really rare and special to him was to get gear like a cap or a shirt from a visiting team mm-hmm. because that was way more difficult to get his hands on. So I would trade beer with Staten Island Yankees were great for this, the Sinclair affiliate for the New York Yankees. Their coaching staff loved Budweiser. Mm-hmm. So I would trade them a few cases of Budweiser. They'd give me a cap. And I'd trade it to John, the beer guy, and he'd give me even more beer than I would normally get. And then on top of all of it, like everybody's happy. And so I was getting more tips. Mm -hmm. So I I was just scraping off the top from all those transactions. That one was pretty consistent. And then the broken bat scheme. (laughs) (laughs) This one, uh, my apologies if there are any um, baseball memorabilia collectors out there. I might have some bad news for you. So I had a deal with the, with the um, gift shop, the hanger where they would sell the broken bats from the players for 20 bucks a pop. And for every broken bat they sold, I would get $7 and 50 cents because I was the one who was supplying the bats. Mm -hmm. All I had to do was take a piece of athletic tape, write down who the bat came from, and then people would buy it or not, depending on, you know, how highly touted of a press prospect that bat came from. So what I started to realize was that the bats that said the names of players like Sam Kimmel or Manny Hernandez, these guys who were not going to go any higher than single A, those bats would sit in the gift shop for months on end, never selling. But if a bat had a name like Mikey Stremski or Trey Mancini, these guys who were future major leaguers, they would sell like hotcakes. <laughs> so, you know, what did I do? I just started flooding the market with all of these Trey Mancini and Mikey Stremski bats are completely fraudulent where I would, I had this deal with the players on the team where if they wanted a new bat, they had to trade me their old broken bat. (laughs) And so let's say Sam Kimmel trades me his old broken bat. I'll just 
take the athletic tape and instead of saying Sam Kimmel number one, I'll just write Yaz number 28 <laughs> and put it in the front. I mean, I did that. I had to be careful about it because I didn't want to flood the market too much and actually, you know, drive down the valuation. But I was just like peppering in a lot of these fraudulent bats. <laughs> I mean, do I feel bad about it? I feel a little bit bad about it. But at the same time, I'm like, I was literally selling garbage. So I was just trying to scrape by. I don't know. It sounds like sorry, not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably right. But those are the kinds of scams that I had to run in order to, you know, make live my second year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lived in the equipment closet to save money on rent. And the, I was just running scams like that and scraping by in the equipment closet just because I wanted to make those difficult summers worth it financially. Yes. Now, now you have to describe the equipment closet that you were living in because that really kind of made me laugh. Talk, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the the team put me up in an apartment my first year. And in that apartment, there'd be five or more people in this two bedroom apartment, guys, players who are changing teams, all this kind of stuff. So we just have like a, I don't know, it's like a hostel there. But the second year I was there, um, the team didn't put me up in an apartment. So I said, screw it. I'm just going to live in the stadium. There's Wi-Fi, there's air conditioning, there's a lot of food usually, and I have access to laundry. So why not? And this equipment closet, it was, you know, a 10 by 12 room, shelves on every side with pine tar, rosin, like all of these very strong chemical baseball scents and jerseys everywhere. And just me in the middle on a tarp and a blow up mattress. And it was one of those things where the first night when I thought about living in an equipment closet leading into the summer, I was like, oh, this is going to be a fun little adventure. But that first night, reality hits you when you're in a windowless closet thinking, this this is my life for a summer. I don't know if I'm going to get out of this with my sanity intact. And I guess the jury is still technically out on that one. <laughs> and, and, and I read in your book that other people slept in the clubhouse too. Is that? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the coaches – it was the coaches. It was like a slumber party that second season, where the trainer, myself, and several of the coaches, they would try to sit. The team would give them money to get a hotel every night or to help, you know, cover rent or something. But the coaches they wanted to pocket as much of that money as possible too, so they would pocket the the hotel money and they would just sleep in the uh, clubhouse. So I mean, any given night, we had three, four, or five staff members, including the manager of the team, all sleeping in the clubhouse. I'm like, just think about those fans on the field. They look on with reverence at the manager of the team. That's Matt Marullo, former major leaguer. He's managing the Ironbirds to a playoff appearance. And then he's just sleeping. He's sleeping in the clubhouse. It's pretty, <laughs> it's funny, but it's like, pathetic. it's yeah. very pathetic at the same time, you know? Right. Well, they were saving money too, right? If they, if they stayed oh, yes. in the clubhouse, they didn't have to get a hotel. Exactly. So there's there's another way to make some extra money. Now now tell us about the food. You know, you had to prepare food like pregame, postgame. What what yeah how good was the food? Was it great, really great food? No, it was disgusting <laughs> looking back on it. I mean, my job that was another way for me to just, you know, scrape as much off the top as possible where it was my obligation to to feed the team both pregame and postgame meals. So what I would normally do is for pregame, I would feed the team a cold meal of cut cut fruits, veggies, and cold cuts. And, you know, that was all fine and 
good. But what wound up happening is that a lot of players, they wouldn't eat, they wouldn't touch the, the pregame spread of cold cuts and stuff. And I didn't want it to go to waste. So what I would do is I'd take it back to the equipment closet slash my bedroom slash the kitchen. And I would just peel all of those cold cuts and refold them the next day so that that, that air exposed layer of the, of the cold cuts that just gets a little bit of a strange film or just a discoloration to it would not be exposed when they picked them up. Uh, that stuff was pretty disgusting. And then after the game, I would feed the team. If I was real desperate, I would just get concessions, leftovers, like hot old hot dogs and hamburgers. But if we were li- really living high off the hog, I would go up to the VIP level, all the luxury box seats where they had a hot buffet. I would go into the kitchen and I would slip the kids working in the kitchen a few bucks and they'd let me take all of the leftovers and then I'd feed that to the team. And so I'd, you know, I'd move the green beans around so it looked like a full platter of green beans or I'd like, I'd put the chicken into a smaller platter so that it looked like there was more than it really was. I mean, I was, I was shifty, David. I was very shifty. (laughs) Sounds delicious, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) What did they eat when they had a really good meal though? What, what was their favorite? They really liked, um, so this team was located in Maryland and in the stadium, there was a, a crab Conrad's crab shack. There was a truck that would just boil up a ton of blue crabs and like Maryland blue crabs, you know, that culture up there, it's like so important to the food culture. And if we were really, really doing well, uh, they would bring us some crab pretzels where, I mean, I don't know how any of us survived eating these things, but it was a big ballpark pretzel topped with, crab meat and mayo and cheese layered on top. And they were just so rich and delicious, but you couldn't eat a full one. The guys would go crazy for those. Oh, that's unbelievable. And now they all have high cholesterol and heart disease. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> they're sure as heck not baseball players anymore. Well, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Save, but maybe a two of them. Those are, those are unbelievable stories. I really... Uh, makes me laugh. Um, talk, talk to me now. Your book's been out what a, about a month. Um, what, what has been the biggest surprise since publishing the book? I was really worried about because look, it's a memoir, and I have to think of people as as characters in a book, but I also have to think of them as real people because I am representing real people in this book, and I was really worried how those people would respond to my representation of them in the book. Um, you know, people I respect, like our pitching coach, Alan Mills, who had 12 years in the majors. And I don't know that I was like real close with him, but we got to be friendly and we had a interesting dynamic back and forth. Um, players like Alex Schmarzo, my, probably my best friend on the team. I was just worried that they would think that I portrayed them harshly or that I portrayed them as losers or something. But quite frankly, the people who have been most supportive of the book and grateful for its existence has been the players, even players who weren't on the team, but in particular players on the team, they have just been thanking me for telling those stories because a lot of people, even hardcore baseball fans don't know what life in the minor leagues is like. And they're just so grateful that I told an accurate description and a story about that world that was evocative of what it's like of being Alex Schmarzo. When I talked to him after reading the book, he said that I somehow captured how amazing and how pathetic that world is perfectly. And it's true. I mean, that's what makes that world so addicting is that there's all of these 
you get your butt kicked in a game, you get your butt kicked off the field, you get moved down, you get released, you get re-signed. But then something amazing happens, like you make a run at a championship like we did in our second year, and it, all of a sudden you're back hooked into the orbit of baseball. And to think that I captured that in a provocative and entertaining way is my favorite and most surprising part of this whole experience. Yeah, it definitely is a, an, an amazing book. For me, it's a home run. It was just so interesting. I, I couldn't put it down. So yeah, great job, Greg. And tell us a little bit about, you know, what other projects you have going? You mentioned you have, you're writing a novel. What, what other things are you, are you up to? Yeah, the novel is a big one. I mean, I spend several hours. My goal is to spend two hours every weekday writing that, trying to get 15 pages every week. I write it in a yellow legal pad. That's a new, it's my first novel and it's definitely my first handwritten book. We'll see how that turns out. But um, other than that, uh, my audio book is coming out uh, in J- June or July, mm-hmm. if my publisher is to be believed. And then on top of it, I'm working on an audio drama of the book with voice actors and sound effects and me as a narrator my goal is to have that finished by the end of the year and beyond that right now i'm just promoting the book and having interesting conversations with people like you david yeah no that's great i'm so glad you came on and and because you're a certified compensation analyst I just want you to know that there are plenty of jobs out there for compensation analysts and compensation professionals. So you you can always fall back on that. (laughs) I'm glad to know. It's good to have a safety net. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm really happy for you. I think that the book was really uh, well done, well written. Uh, Your second, like you said, your second book. And um, tell, tell our listeners how they can, you know, get in touch with you, how they can get your book. Yeah. The best way to get in touch with me on social media, follow the clubby podcast, get extra content from the book and order the book, including signed copies. You can do all of that at the website, clubbybook.com. That's C L U B B I E book.com. Excellent. Excellent. And, and you have a, you know, you also have your website. Can you give us your website too? Yeah, my personal website is Greg-Larson, G-R-E-G-L-A-R-S-O-N. And I have I, I have a blog focusing on writing and emotional growth. And you can find um, access to me and information to get in touch with me if you're interested in, if you need help editing your book, uh, if you need book coaching, I have helps David with that type of work. Yes. And I am happy to help anybody who reaches out to me if we are a good fit. That is wonderful. You're multi-talented. We really appreciate that. Well, Greg, this was a real pleasure talking with you. And I really appreciate the time you spent with us on the Pay Matters podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on Pay Matters. Make sure to visit our website, paymattersbook.com, where you can check out our best-selling book, Pay Matters, The Art and Science of Employee Compensation, available for purchase on the website and now on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. David Weaver is available for compensation consulting, training programs, and speaking engagements. Thanks for listening. Gotta show me the money. Whatever.